My name is Louis Menjavar. I'm the young adults pastor here. I'm also part of the teaching team. And, uh, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed this summer series that we've been walking through as we explore James. We've gotten to hear from different perspectives and uh, from different, in terms of words of admonition and exhortation that James would, would encourage all of us, any of us who would seek to follow Jesus in. And, uh, you know, it's been an eventful summer series. Uh, some of us might remember last week, Pastor Terry was given two hours notice that the guest speaker uh, was not going to be able to make it, and, uh, and he had to step in, and, and he did, and we had a pretty special weekend. In fact, he enjoyed it so much, he thought it'd be good for me to experience uh, much the same thing. <laughs> And uh, gave me an hour's notice and uh, let me know the passage I was going to be speaking on. And, um, no, I'm obviously kidding. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had an opportunity to share a couple times already this summer. And, um, and so this will be my final piece, my final installment for what we're walking through in, in this series. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of feeling like I just what a tremendous privilege it is to be able to serve in this community. And in this body, in this church, and to be able to share what God may want to say to us, I just found myself extremely grateful and uh, thankful for that. You know, I'm very excited for what we're about to engage in and uh, perhaps what God may want to say to us. But uh, before we do that, let's pray for something of his blessing, and, um, and then we'll, we'll step into this together. So, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for uh, the fact that when we set some time aside in our week, and we draw near to your house, I thank you for the way your presence is able to put so much of our worries and concerns at ease. I thank you for how refreshing the reminder of you who are the initiator of this relationship are anxious to draw near to us and fill our souls with your peace. And I even just think of the, the way maybe some of us have stepped into this house, this time here. Different things have attached themselves to us. Different concerns and worries weigh on us. I thank you, Lord, that you're able to, in some way, pause what it is we're struggling with and, in a very unique way, have a conversation with us. As we engage with your word, you're able to speak to us personally, strengthen us, remind us of the fact that you who started a good work, you fully intend to finish it. And as we reflect on the reality of your return, Lord, and how that may change so many other areas of our lives, I pray that you would have direct access to us and that you would uh, be able to empower us with your voice. That we would leave here knowing we have met with you. We pray for this, Lord. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We've been walking through this series, exploring James and hearing different themes and emphasis that James was making in his letter. And, you know, this weekend, I'd like us to consider a pillar, a, a, an assumption, um, an anchor point that James wanted everyone who he was writing to to make. And it's a simple idea. It's not often talked about. But if we embrace, if we anchor ourselves in the reality of Christ's return, the potential that has to not just shift our paradigm and perspective, but it has the ability to literally transform every other area of our lives. Because that small shift, maybe not rather so small, 
has a ripple effect that changes perhaps how we may view our current circumstances, our struggles that we may be currently walking through, how we may engage this season of our lives, and maybe even how we may think about where we're headed. It has profound effect if we anchor ourselves in his return. And you know, this idea that one thing can change everything. It's something that I, I was reminded of when I was reading a book called The Power of Habit. And in this book, they, they discussed how one habit can change every, everything else. In fact, they, they talked about, they gave an illustration of a man named Paul O'Neill. And it was 1984 where the board of directors was, uh, of this company called Alcoa decided that it was time for them to f- look for a shift in their leadership. See, they, they, they stand for the Aluminum Company of America. And they, they, they made everything from Hershey, wrapper kiss, uh, you know, Hershey Kiss wrappers uh, to Coke cans to bicycle frames. They were all over the manufacturing industry. But they had made some bad investments, and they had some inefficiencies within the company that had stalled their ability to be productive. Their value was gradually decreasing. It was rapidly going through a downward spiral. And so they decided, we're going to shift things out. They let go of the CEO and asked Paul O'Neill to consider becoming the CEO. Now, here's what he did. He, in considering what was happening, he sat down and he made a list of every single change he thought needed to occur in order for this company to stop its downward spiral and to go upwards towards profitability. And the more he thought about the unions and different segments of this national company, he quickly came to the conclusion that this task is nearly impossible. Unless he found a key, unless he found one focal point that could transform everything. And at the end of his analysis, he came to a conclusion that he had found such the key. And he decided that the way to transform this company and to stop its bleeding, and to turn it around, and turn it into a profitable company again, was safety. It was an interesting conclusion he made. Because what he did was he he went ahead and in their first meet and greet with the major investors of the company, where they all wanted to meet their new CEO, and people were anxious and nervous and almost welcoming a change, but also wanting to know who their CEO, he introduced himself in this way. He got up to the podium, he thanked them for this opportunity to accept, to embrace this position, And he said something to the extent of, what I want to talk to you about today is safety. See, I've noted that our company is pretty average in terms of the safety numbers in the country. Considering the machinery and the the danger of what we work with in our factories and facilities, it's, it's pretty impressive what we do. But every week I've noticed, and somewhere in our company, somebody gets injured. And because they get injured, they're not able to come to work. And that lowers our ability to produce. So here's what I would like us to do. I would like us to go after this goal. Let's make our company the safest company in the US. And then he thanked them. And then just to impress how much passion he had about this, he said, now, since we're sitting in this hotel suite, in this room, in this ballroom, I just want to alert you to different emergency exits in the back of the room. (laughs) And in case of an emergency, we all know the procedure. Let's just take our time. Let's walk as, as orderly as possible. We'll meet up the outside in case something happens. And everything will be okay. And then he stepped back. And the people that had come feeling a little bit anxious felt a little bit more anxious, (laughs) a little bit more confused. They were wondering who they had just hired. And an investor immediately left, ran out of the the room, called his clients, and said, sell all of your shares of Alcoa. (laughs) The person we have just hired, they they have just hired somebody who's going to finish the downward spiral that the previous CEO started. 
And his clients listened. And then somebody else within the crowd who decided to kind of move on the impulse of anxiety they had, they raised their hand and they thought, you know what, maybe we could talk about profits. And so they said, uh, what about the inventory we have and the different maybe inefficiencies that are going on? Or how, what's your plan to fix all of this and maybe develop a little bit of profitability in the short term? And, and he respectfully, calmly stuck to his anchor point, redirected the entire question, said that that's actually the wrong question. See, if you want to know about our company, you're going to ask what our safety numbers look like. Because if we pursue excellence in safety, then our company will be in a position of strength. And you will know how our company is doing. And that, that didn't really help the situation. And everyone left wondering what was going on. But he knew what he was doing. Because in a year's time, he transformed the entire company. Here's what he knew. Nobody could argue safety. Every union, nobody, in, in, in terms of the union, in, in terms of their interests, they could never come to Paul O'Neill and say, listen, we just don't like the emphasis you're making on safety. We don't like the fact that you're making this a safer place for our members. It's impossible to say that. And management would never want to be seen as putting profit ahead of the safety of the employees. And so throughout the entire company, there was this mutual point of commonality that forced them to make some adjustments. And in a year's time, something remarkable happened. One thing started happening. One of the implementations to pursue this habit of the best, the safest company in America was communication. So he had every department head and every manager and every executive report to him and give him a weekly report of the safety numbers of different facilities and factories throughout the country, different places that the company was spread out in. And so every week, the managers and the executives had to compile a report. This need for more uh, rapid communication ended up creating the United States, in the US, the first internal email system in a business. This need ended up creating rapid communication that drastically increased its efficiency. But something else started happening. See, the managers started realizing that in order for them to pursue what the CEO had implemented in terms of their primary goal, in order for them to pursue this habit of safety, they had to figure out, they, they had somebody at their disposal who had the best access to what that might look like, the person on the very ground level of their company. And so a revolution of sorts occurred. Managers started asking for feedback from the bottom up. The, the person working with the machines had the best idea of when machines were broken. So if, if you notice that they're broken and they need fixing, please let us know immediately. If something needs to be replaced, please make us aware of that. If you see a coworker going through a procedure that may lend them to be at risk of injury, please let us know. We'll change that. In fact, if you have ideas of how to make this entire company safer, let us know. We are listening. And they actually listened. Employees, at first, a little tenuous at what was happening, started offering ideas, saw them embrace, started seeing things change. And then something else happened. Communication lines and walls started going down. Communication channels started opening up. They started communicating a little bit more than just safety procedures. People within the company who had a better idea of how to make higher levels of productivity started offering different points of opinion. And they were heard. And then other people who had business ideas that they had buried because no one would ever listen to them before, now that they had an audience, started giving their business ideas for this company. You know what, if we go into this sector of the field, perhaps we, we already have the equipment, we have the manpower, maybe we could get new revenue streams. Managers and executives 
especially Paul O'Neill, started listening. They started investing their energy. They started diversifying their abilities throughout the country. And in a year's time, profits drastically started increasing. It was a revolutionary thing in American business. And then something that every CEO craves happened. See, up until that point, most unions within the company in different departments in the management and everyone, every level was really just concerned with their own interests. And they were just staking out their own ground. And they weren't really thinking of the rest of the company or the, the betterment of the entire whole. And so this desire to pursue safety forced them to work together. And this forced sense of teamwork ended up giving them an ability to see that when they work together, the company succeeds. And when the company succeeds, the very needs that they had been fighting for before were now starting to become satisfied. And they started putting each other's interests ahead of their own. And they saw that when the company wins, we win. And a high level of synergy infiltrated every sector of the company. It was unbelievable. It was so unbelievable that the author used this, this example and said this, that it showed that there are such habits that have so many strings attached, that create so many ripples in our lives. They call them keystone habits. The weight and the gravity that they hold when they are single-mindedly pursued they don't just transform that aspect, they transform everything. And at the end of his letter, after James is giving his instruction, he comes to this point and he says, now, let's remember why we're even seeking to do this entire thing. This is what it anchors on. This is what holds everything together. This is the very reason we should pursue this life with Christ. And this is it. If you open up your hand, I will start, start in James 5, verse 7. Anchored in his return, the case he is trying to make. And we'll just walk through this passage together. And we'll see in verse 7, he starts off and he says, listen, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to be patient. I want you to be patient. I want you to be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. I, and I want you to consider this patience differently than how you might initially consider it. In fact, consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. Think about the farmer. Think about the farmer who invests something. See, that in the same way that a farmer plants a seed under the ground, God has deposited something within our soul. And so I want you to think about them because this is what they do. They eagerly. They, with high levels of anticipation, look for the valuable harvest to ripen. They look for the seed to explode through the ground, for the seed to mature and fruit to appear. And so in the same way, he says in verse 8, you too must be patient. If you've started something with God, if God has deposited something of his kingdom in your life, Wait on him. Actively wait, nurture, and continue in what he is doing. Do not pull out early. Why? Because, listen, take courage. The coming of the Lord is near. What he has started, he will complete. He will not relent. And even though you may not see life happening, changing, and habits completely being transformed on the surface under the ground, something 
is coming. And God is moving. Wait for the harvest. A rather encouraging word. Delivered to an audience in deep need of encouragement. And then he has another implication. He says, listen, this reality that Jesus is going to come back and fulfill what he has started, that he has not abandoned us, that he is near, that he is here, should affect how we relate to each other. He turns the corner and he says in verse 9, listen, I want you, I've heard of this and I want you to not do this anymore. Don't grumble about each other. I, I don't want, don't turn on each other. When, when the pressure and the stress of life comes in on you and things are not going your way and you're feeling like frustrated, don't grumble about each other. Don't attack each other. Let's not let that be a marking point of who we are, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged for look. And then he says something that would strike us as stark. He says, listen, the judge is standing at the door. He's right here in our midst. It would be nothing but negative to us. And the tone might sound severe, but in their day, the thought in the first century of having Jesus as the judge who will come and evaluate all of humanity and reset all that is wrong and make it right was actually a breath of fresh air. Because see, the first century believers, they, they experienced everything but justice. In the Roman courts, what they experienced was persecution and oppression, hatred and anger for their belief, threatened by the fact that they loved not Caesar, but the resurrected Christ. And because they had been pulled out of their communities and scattered throughout Palestine, relationships had to be strained and ended. They wanted and longed for the day their deliverer would come. He is near. He is near. And I think the best way we can maybe even capture the essence of what James is saying and how they may have interpreted it was, I think, captured by N.T. Wright. And I put this quote right next to uh, our passage. He says, listen, the main point to notice once more is that all the future judgment is highlighted basically as good news, not bad. Why so? He says, it is good news first because the one through whom God's justice will finally sweep the world is not, and this is key, a hard-hearted, arrogant, or vengeful tyrant whom they were more than used to experiencing. No, this is not the one who will come, who will return. No, it is a man of sorrows, deeply acquainted with grief, a man who walked with a broken heart for those around him. A man who represented the broken heart of God for us. This is the one we wait for. This is the one who will restore all that is good. He says, listen, I want you to, he says, the Jesus who loved sinners and died for them. This is the one. This is the judge James was commending. The Jesus who loved sinners and died for them. The Messiah who took the world's judgment upon himself on the cross. That sacrificial, loving, selfless, nothing but forgiving and gracious one is the one James says he's standing right in our midst. He's right here. And that depth of love should both inspire and restrain us in how we treat each other and how we speak to one another. This 
is the case if we really embrace the fact that he will one day return. And then he goes on and he says, listen, let me point to some examples we may have. In verse 10 he says, for examples of patience and suffering, for, for looking to see how to suffer, go through tough circumstances well. Listen, dear brothers and sisters, he says, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Look at the people of the Old Testament who had something of a vision for what God was doing in our world. Look at how they suffered. And he says in verse 11, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. And I think even us here in this room may have people in our lives that we have seen, we have walked with to, through a degree of suffering. And it is nothing but compelling when we see somebody sustained by the grace of God. We see, we see somebody who is able to go through very hard circumstances and yet somehow, some way, hope is not snuffed out. And we, we honor that. We highly respect it. And he says, listen, in the way we do that, remember, for instance, you know about Job. He calls on Job. A man that I think is hard to top in terms of suffering. He says, we, we know about him, a man of great endurance, with which he, they would easily understand what he was referring to. But for those of us who may not be familiar with Job's story, it's basically this. There was a time where Job was living a life that was right in God's eyes. He was doing everything right in God's eyes. And then the accuser of his soul, of our soul, the enemy of God, comes before God and accuses Job. And he says, listen, the only reason Job is even doing this, living this way, is because, look, obviously, look how much you've given him. You've blessed him with wealth. Look at his family. Look at his standing in the community. I mean, he's the most honored. He's the most revered. Obviously, those are his motives. Take that away. We'll see what happens. I bet he, take, he turns away from you, curses you. And God responds, I don't believe you. I don't think that's Job. And I'm going to let you test him. And all of a sudden, Job finds himself in the midst of this heavenly conversation without realizing it. And what happens? He's left with his life and his wife. His family, gone. His wealth, gone. His standing in honor and reputation, disseminated. Completely removed, like that. And the, the remainder of this account of Job's story is that he's sitting there with boils on his skin and extreme pain and extreme loss, highly confused, perplexed, angry, complains and releases his sorrow. And throughout this entire account, he can't help but let out his frustration. He does not understand what's happening. He doesn't know why it's happening, but one thing he does not do. He never turns his back on God. And he comes to this conclusion that ends up becoming the anchor of his life. He says, listen, I don't understand anything that's going on. I don't know why this is happening. I mean, God knows I did everything that is right. But one thing I know, that God is good. And that God is just. And that God will have the final say in my life. And God is good. That God is just, and God will have the final say in my life. And that held him. That held him through the most terrible experience 
imaginable. And James says, listen, when everything you're doing is trying to live a life aligned with God, and everything that seems to be happening is wrong and not right, and it's not panning out the way you want it to pan out, look at Job. Look at Job. Look at how he persevered, and look at the end intended by God. And we're told, and he says, you can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And we know that at the end of his story, in this account we're given, it is one of the most miraculous endings. God ends up stepping into Job's life, ends up reminding him of who he is to Job, and ends up restoring everything plus more. And he shows himself to be nothing but tender and merciful to Job. And James is saying, in the same way God showed himself that way to Job, he longs to show himself that way to us. To patiently endure. It is never in vain when we endure in God. It is never a waste. It is never a waste. What a word James is seeking us to embrace anchored in the reality that he will complete what he has started. He will return. And I, I was thinking about this, and in our remaining moments, I would like us maybe to consider, even perhaps give God ability to speak to us as we might think about what this might look like, how it might pan out in our lives. And I'd like to make a couple suggestions. One, that when we anchor our souls in his return, we find the endurance to live out God's purposes in our lives. We find the strength to be able to wait. Because I would say, isn't it true that waiting is the most difficult part? That some of us may have longings and dreams. We may desire certain things. We have hopes and aspirations. And we have invested ourselves. We have invested energy. We have declared things. We have committed ourselves. And in the waiting, it becomes extremely difficult. I know for myself, I have things I'm currently waiting for. I, I know for myself, the waiting is the toughest part. I recently decided, you know, with, we just got together and it's like maybe there's a new season of training up ahead. And I ended up applying to graduate schools nearby so I could stay here and continue to you know, serve. And I remember how excited I was initially. And, and it was it's the weirdest thing, applying for school with excitement. It, it, it's different, you know. Actually wanting to do it. And I remember getting all the recommendations, everything in order, submitting everything, and, th and then letting me know, this is the time period you'll hear back from us. And so I was okay with that time period. And then I went away and came back, and that time period had come and gone, and I hadn't heard anything. And I think you and I may understand that silence usually is bad. <laughs> and so with a little bit of anxiety, I decided to pick up the phone and call the admissions counselor and say, ah, you know, I haven't heard back. I was kind of out of town. I came back and just wondering, is my application complete? Is there anything else you need? Um, just checking in. And the first time, I was just like, Louis, you don't, don't worry. We'll, we'll go ahead and email you right away, and we'll send you a hard copy over the mail. I said, okay, great. Some time passed by. I haven't heard anything back. So I decided to call just one more time. And I said, I just want to triple check. I want to make sure I dot my I's and cross my T's. Is there anything? It says, Louis, you know what? I'll tell you what. I will call you and tell you right away, send you an email, and send you something in the mail. 
And then this last weekend, I ended up seeing them. We went to a, 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 a leadership training. Some of our staff went there, and they, the school was being represented there. And I saw her, and I knew it was her. This was an admissions counselor, and I, I, I felt embarrassed. I, I didn't want her to know it was me, but she, she, some, she knew. And so she saw me, and so I went, I went up to her, introduced myself. Hi, you know, I'm sorry for bothering you. She said, you know, it's funny. You're not the only one. Everyone calls me. Everyone. Because the waiting is the hardest part, isn't it? The silence is the hardest part, isn't it? The anticipation is the hardest part. The desire, I, I want a close relationship where I can experience intimacy in a healthy way. And it's not there. And that's the hardest part. Oh, I'm in a relationship that I know can be so much healthier than it currently is, and right now things are very hard. And I know God promises to bring about health and wholeness, but right now, I'm just not experiencing it. And actively waiting, staying hopeful, realizing that something is happening under the surface. Though we may not see it, a harvest is going to come. Well, that's just the hardest part. Because what God has started, He will never quit on. And if He has engaged with us, He will see it through its completion. And some of us, that is our work. Others of us, perhaps it is more similar to what Job had to endure. Where we are in the midst of a very trying circumstance and we do not understand and we are confused and everything does not make sense. And the temptation, the wind blowing on us is to pull us away from the very one who we know loves us and shows grace and mercy to us. And our strength, our ability is to tie ourselves around the anchor of the fact that he will complete what he has started. And this very hard situation will pass. And the day will come when the sun will burst onto our scene and tenderness and the warmth of mercy will be the defining factor. This too will pass. This too will pass. This too will pass. Because if he started it, he will complete it. See, being anchored in the reality of his return, it also enables us to enhance our ability to love one another, doesn't it? It enables us, and we see in verse 9 that really what James is saying is don't grumble about each other. Let's be very slow to, to attack each other and to look at each other's flaws and weaknesses and everything that is wrong with our relationships, which is so easy to do. And what he's saying is, listen, here is the one who loves us right here at the door. That should inspire us to dislodge ourselves from getting stuck relationally and to be slow to take offense. To be quick to release other people of their debts to us. Because the day will come when God will take care of that. It's not on us. He is the good judge. The sacrificial judge. Who is acquainted with grief. Whose heart breaks for all of us. He will restore. And that releases us. To get unstuck. To no longer hold grudges to no longer dwell on the negative, to no longer dwell on what ought to have happened, or what should never have happened, or what should have happened but didn't happen. But he's also speaking about something else, isn't he? He's saying, listen, let's not 
go towards our natural tendency to judge each other, to, to have these conclusions about each other. Let's not go there. Let's not land there. Let's be free of judgment against each other. Let's enhance how we love each other. And I was thinking about this and processing this out last night. And we, we, we were just talking about the whole service and how things were going. And I was anxious to get home. And my wife and I were walking down, you know, up 17th towards the Lord. So we were making our way to the car. And as we're making our way to the car, it's around 9, 9.15 or so. And it's dark out. And we see a pile of clothing out in the middle of the sidewalk. And the closer we get, we realize that it's not a pile of clothing. It's actually a person lying on the floor in the middle of the sidewalk. It looks to be a, a young man in his mid-twenties. And it looks like this person was walking down and all of a sudden just fell face down. Just sitting there, passed out, unconscious. And as I'm considering this and wondering and getting out of my headspace of where I was at and now being confronted with this current reality and considering what my response is going to be, I noticed that my wife, who is a nurse and natural in this kind of circumstance, ends up just jumping in there gets down and starts attending to him and says, honey, we need to, we need to figure out what's going on. She, she starts uh, trying to wake him up and starts trying to move him. And then all of a sudden, these two women come and they stand there and they think it's a good idea to call 911. They do. She holds his wrist, finds out he has a very faint pulse, finds out he has a very faint breath. Two other guys come, starts, you know, they start deci- deciding what to do. They need to turn him over. So she ends up turning him over. And then a physician who's on a bicycle, who just happens to be riding by, ends up pulling over over. It's an amazing event that just started unfolding. And the whole time, I'm just slow to react. I'm just standing there. Just, this, this is happening. And a physician just comes and, and gets off his bike. So, and he's literally said, I'm a doctor. I think I, I can help. And, and then my wife and he start coordinating. They start talking. They call 911. The ambulance comes. The sirens are very loud, obviously. The fire department comes and everyone is there. It's just an enormous event just starts happening. He starts waking up. And he comes consciously, he starts slurring his words, he starts, and immediately he wakes up and he dawns on him that all these people have woken him up, and he is very upset. <laughs> Angry, actually. And he comes to, to and we, we're a little bit afraid, but then he ended up insulting everyone in that circle, <laughs> one by one. <laughs> he starts insulting them. And he starts, you could tell he's attacking them to give him space. And he's angry. And I'm thinking, we're trying to help you. Everyone here is concerned for you. And he just starts spewing venom everywhere. He just spreads it so eloquently. And, and as he's sitting there, you could immediately tell that he is filled with different toxins and chemicals that have robbed his ability to be in his right mind. And the paramedics come out. And he starts spewing venom at them. They're bigger than him, so he stops. (laughs) But one thing never happened. No one got offended. No one ever judged him. No one ever had preconceived notions. They loved him. They attended to him. It was a living lesson for me. I was just observing the whole thing. And when we judge... We block our ability to love. And is it the one who maybe most was able to judge, who decided to forgive? Wasn't he the one who said, forgive my enemies? 
Wasn't he the one who said, by this you will be known as my followers, by the way you love one another. Isn't he the one? It's a picture of Christ's heart towards all of us because we're all hurt. We all have things that are with us, that bind us, that hurt us, that rub us the wrong way. If we can move into a place, and James would say, let this be the defining factor of your community. Remember the standard that's right before us. Remember the one who showed us how to love. Let's love like he loved. Let's put down the offenses. Let's put down the guards. Let's put down the defenses. And let's love each other. What what a powerful thing that would be. Lastly, it does not just enhance our ability to love one another. It also gives us a hope, a hope that will hold us. There is a hope that we are held by, and the reality is that we ultimately have a future to look towards. And if that day comes in our lifetime, if Jesus returns in our lifetime, well, that would be the biggest event in human history. If that day comes when every tear will be wiped away, where there will no longer be pain, where every source of brokenness will be made whole, where everything that is wrong will be replaced with everything that is right, where what he started will be completed. Oh, that day will be an amazing day in our lifetime. But if that does not happen into many, many years after our lifetime, well, then between now and then, we have something to live for. We have something that holds us. We have a constant reminder that no matter how hard things may seem, God is on the move. And if he's on the move, then anything we do with him and for him is never in vain. This ignited Paul, ignited the first century believers, and it completely turned their world upside down. Paul, in light of this, said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, listen, I want you, therefore, I want you to be steadfast, immovable, anchor yourself, tie yourself down to this reality that God will finish what he started. Listen, I want you to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that any investment you make in God is never in vain. You invest energy, you invest prayer, you invest your skills, your talents, your resource, you invest your relationships, your life into God, and it will never be in vain because what he has started He will return one day and complete. May that, may that anchor us as we seek to follow him in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that it was you who decided to knit us fearfully and wonderfully. It was you who decided to give us the personalities, the gifts, the skills. You who called us beloved. You who decided to step into our lives and show us yourself through Jesus. A love that knows no bounds and grace that is immeasurable. Forgiveness that is able to overcome any offense. You were the one who started this good work inside of us and you are the one who will continue it into its completion. Would you anchor us, God, in the reality that you are both near and definitely on a mission to return and complete everything in your kingdom. May it grow through us. May it impact how we see our priorities, 
what we invest ourselves in, may it transform us from the inside out. May we love each other well. May it hold us when we are too weak to hold on. We pray for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.